The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 35, verses 1 through 29, chapter 36, 2 through 7, and chapter 39, 42 and 43. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days' work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins and goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tents and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the valve of the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light and the altar of the incense with its poles and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering, with its grating of bronze, its poles, and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle, and the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of the meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. They came both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ramskins or goatskins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a farewell offering to the Lord. And Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whose mind Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for this sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. 
Then Moses blessed them. This is the word of the Lord. Next week uh, is our last week in Exodus. So we're finishing up our study in the book of Exodus. Uh, I want you to know that it's going to be an important week. I hope you can make it. I hope you don't have vacation scheduled. I understand if you do, but um, next week is an important week for the series as we're bringing everything kind of together in the close. And it's interesting how the book ends uh, in a very specific way. So you want to be here for that. And um, secondly, I think this is going to be, I know you're listening to the sermon or you're listening to the reading of the text and kind of big question marks might be going up in in your brain right now. But I think this is going to be uh, an important sermon for us this morning uh, for at least two reasons. One, we are a fairly young church. Uh, We have a lot of young people and young families. And one of the traits of this younger generation is that we want everything, and pardon me, I'm going to use just common vernacular here, right? We want everything to be kind of chill. Uh, We don't want to make commitments. We want to keep our options open just in case something better comes along. Uh, We don't want to feel like we have to do something. We kind of run from what feels like pressure or commitment. And we bring this attitude into the church. We're afraid of making commitments to a church because if things get uncomfortable, we want to be able to make an easy exit out the back doors. We want our relationships to be really comfortable and really kind of chill. And if they get tough, we look for a different community or a different church um, that has more chill. We also tend to want our relationship with God to be chill. What this usually means, and none of us would actually say this, but I'm going to describe it for what, you know, as I'm looking at it, as I'm kind of diagnosing it, we want, what it usually means when we want our relationship with God to be chill, what that means is that I want God to be my cosmic therapist in the sky. I want him to chill and relax and listen to all of my suffering and all of my complaining. I want him to help me in non-judgy ways. I want him to then listen and help me in a non-judgy way and then kind of send me on my way to do what I already wanted to do in the first place. But now I just feel a little lighter because I got some of that stuff off my chest. What does God get out of the deal, you may ask? Well, we come to church occasionally, don't we? We pray, don't we? We may even throw some money at him once in a while. What more could God want? Now, the downside to this attitude is that when we do this, we end up worshiping a God that we have created in our own image. We have created a God to meet our, our perceived emotional needs. The God that we think we need, the God that we think we want, we've invented him in our mind and we pray to him. Get out of here. Fly. Sorry, not you. <clears throat> this is why so many people in this generation, listen, we have very shallow personal relationships And their relationship with God is as thin as a sheet of paper. They've never had what's called a power encounter with the real God of the Bible. They've never been confronted with a God who who, who says, this is who I am, and kind of shows them who they are, and it's not in their image, and a God that they don't like, but they say, but you're real, and you're true, and you're good, and you're beautiful, and, and, and they're melted in his presence. They've never had a power encounter with God. And I'm going to say, you're not a Christian until you've had a power encounter, and you've been melted, and you realize the God that you thought existed in your mind was a false God. It might have been the God that just says, toe the line, walk in obedience, be a good person, and everything will go good in your life. That's not a real God. That's that's not the real God of the Bible. Can be all different types of these ideas of what we've got. We expect kind of God to kind of 
come in all chill and meet us where we're at and kind of conform to us instead of realizing that if there is a real God out there and he is our creator, then it just makes logical sense that we would have to conform to him. And the other consequence of this attitude is that we think, here, here it is, that God just wants our occasional, half-hearted, sentimental devotion. See, we think that God, he's pretty chill too. I'm sure he's happy with me because I'm just kind of chill. I'm not a psychopath, right? I'm not killing people on my time off, right? I'm a pretty chill person. God's really chill. I think we're probably pretty good. Now, listen, I'm not saying anything, there's anything wrong with being chill, okay? But being chill or dispassionate, however you want to say it, it's not life-changing, right? No one was ever changed by, oh, that was just so chill, right? It's not awe-inspiring. Chill doesn't create worship. Chill doesn't give your life meaning and fill your day with substance. See, the best marriages, they're not chill, right? They're full of passion and arguments and fierce love. And I'm going to say it like this, just starting us out. God has no chill. He's not like us. And if we want to have a real power encounter with him, if we want to really know him as he is, we na- cannot expect to him, expect him to come at us all chill like we want him to. He is who he is. And today we're going to see that. And I believe even from this kind of crazy text that if you see that, it could absolutely change your life. And the second reason I think this is going to be important for us this morning is because in our text, we're going to see, listen, the fuel of all of our obedience to God, the fuel of all of our worship, all of our living to God, all of our obedience, all of our behavior, like the fuel to how we live. We're going to see What is, like, how do I say that? What is that fuel? What is it that motivates us to obey? What is it that gives us the power and the strength to obey in our day-to-day lives? We're going to see what our faith is supposed to run on. And if you ever struggle understanding how to walk with God, especially in the midst of your sinfulness, in the midst of your failures, in the midst of making a promise and breaking it and never ever living up to expectations and you just get tired and exhausted and you don't know, how am I supposed to do this? Today's going to be a day that you need to pay attention. So let me pray and we'll get started. Father, we come to your word expecting great things. We come to your word expecting to be ministered to, to be spoken to by the real God over all the universes, the one creator God that has given us self-revelation in a book and in his son. And we come before it and we stand under it. We sit under it and we said, Father, speak to us this morning. Let us see you in this maybe even obscure text that's 3,500 years old. I pray that you would speak. Father, I pray that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords and it'd be all of you and none of me and this would be for your glory and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 35. You notice we are covering four chapters today. Um, I gave uh, Rob and Jeff uh, the best text of the, the, whole, the whole thing, all right? The last two weeks have been phenomenal. If you haven't been around, you need to watch that podcast or listen to that podcast. And now I get to cover again the tabernacle. If you were around a month or so ago, I did this once before. Now, this kind of, we should ask a question. What's going on here in the book of Exodus? Now, listen, the book of Exodus, if you're just joining us, it's, it's about 3,500 years old, okay? And I doubt that you find yourself Uh, reading any other books that old um, outside of the Bible. Uh, But it's also unique, and listen, it's unique in its literary genre, okay? It isn't easily categorized categorized like most modern books are. See, you you go to the library and write, you have sections, right? Poetry, history, biographies, etc. Well, Exodus 
is unique because it's got pieces of all of those in it. The first 20 chapters, as we've studied through, the first 20 chapters moved pretty quick, and it was first-person historical narrative, and it was very easy to read. But then chapters 21 through 24 were a detailed overview of the covenant and the constitution of the nation of Israel. Israel. There we took 10 weeks and we studied the 10 commandments and the laws that God issued to protect the powerless in the nation of Israel and defined the nation as distinct and just and good and holy from all the surrounding nations. Then we came to chapters 25 through 30, which we dealt with in one week. I had to do that again. And they were basically highly detailed blueprints for the people of Israel to use to build God a mobile home among them and fully furnish it to his exact specifications, right? This mobile home was going to be called the tabernacle. All right, that was five chapters, actually six chapters, I think six chapters of, of just detail-oriented. Now, it's very off. You don't, you're not reading, you know, Lord of the Rings, and then you come to six chapters on detail, speci- you know, and like that's what an engineer would do, right? Not a good author, sorry, engineers, right? Like, let's just tell them exactly what it looked like and just lay it out and so you could build it. But this is something unique. This is something special. This is, you know, this is a word from God and it's got something special to teach us and to show us. Then, right after this happened, the book snaps back into its historical narrative genre and we learn what of the people's great rebellion while Moses was on the mountain meeting with God in chapter 32. And then we see God's gracious provision for them in chapters 33 through 34. Just like God did in the garden with Adam and Eve, he is also doing here with his rebellious people. He has made a way for them to be forgiven, to be brought back into his presence, into the heart of the universe, into the glory of God, and to know and enjoy him. God does this, we see, in a very particular and specific way through Moses, his mediator, and through renewing the covenant that they had already broken, right? We'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. We agree, we agree, we agree. Before Moses gets down with the Ten Commandments, they've already broken the covenant. And now we come to chapters 35 to 39, and this is where we might get really confused, or maybe if you're reading this on your own, and I know this is what you've never, I know you've done this, you start skimming the chapters, right? It's kind of like those chapters, he begat, he, you know, son of, son of, son of, begat, 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 and you're like, next chapter. Man, I'm crushing my Bible reading plan today, <laughs> right? Eight minutes, done. Right? Well, I know that's what we're doing. Now here, this is interesting. What's happening in 35 through 39? They're almost identical to chapters 25 through 30. Where in 25 through 30, God gave the blueprints to his mobile home and all of the furnishings. Chapters 35 and 39 are a detailed account of their construction. Now we should ask ourselves, what is the point here? Why is God including this amount of detail again? Why give such a detailed description of the tabernacle and all of its furnishings twice? Well, I think there's at least two reasons. One, right worship only happens when we obey God's word. Right worship only happens when we do what God says in the way that he says it. Now that might sound a little trite, When I wrote it down, it sounded trite to me. But honestly, I could not think of a better way to say it. It's so easy for us to think, listen, that God only cares about good intentions. That he's pretty chill about our obedience and how we worship him. And he really just wants us to give the good old college try. But that is not right worship We've learned over this series, and Harold Best has told us in his book, Unceasing Worship, that worship is this. Worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light 
of a choosing God or a chosen God in light of God. So worship is the way we live toward God. It isn't just what we do here this morning, though this is included. And we cannot live our lives whatever way we desire and assume that God is okay with it. God gives us, he's given us his word. He's told us. This is like your wife sitting you down and going, okay, this is what I want for my birthday, right? I want this. I I put it in the cart on Amazon for you. All you do is go check out and you go, you know what? I think she wants a new fishing pole. I, I think a fish, I think that's a good thing. We could spend time together and fish. I have good intentions. Listen, if you do that, you're an idiot, right? That's not loving your wife well, right? She's told you how to love her. Just do that and it'll go well for you. God is telling his people, this is how you worship me. It's very detailed, right? It's very specific, They cannot worship him however they feel like it. And the same is true for us today. Yes. Now listen, we can live a life of worship. When you eat a steak, right? For my birthday, my mom made me steak. I cut it. I ate it in worship, right? I'm not worshiping the steak. I'm worshiping the giver of the steak and the marinator of the steak and the cooker of the steak, right? I'm worshiping God, right? For giving all of those Things. Yes, you can live a life of worship. Yes, you can worship while you're playing Frisbee golf. And yes, you can worship while you're playing golf on the golf course. Yes, worship God in those ways. Do those things, but not. But you cannot worship God fully if you neglect what happens here on Sunday morning. If you neglect the gathering of God's people to worship him in a very specific way. We are commanded... God has given us his word. We're commanded to read the scriptures publicly. We're commanded to listen to the preaching of God's word. We're commanded to take communion as often as we come together. We are commanded to pray together and confess our sins. We are commanded to profess our faith in the risen and reigning Jesus Christ. I said, men, we are commanded to love our wives and lead our families to put God's family, the church above our own above our aspirations for our children. I know you want them to be professional athletes, right? And so you think, well, I'm going to sacrifice the Sunday gathering to, for my kids' future good, right? That's worshiping God in your way and not the way he prescribed. Women, ladies, you're called to respect your husbands and learn to, in the words of Peter, adorn yourself with the imperishable imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. We are all commanded to be generous and to support church planting and the making of disciples around the world. See, God has been clear on how he wants us to worship him, and it's right here in his holy word. It isn't random or haphazard. It isn't based upon our feelings or the amount of time that we want to allocate to God or spiritual things. He commands us to do this every week. This text starts in a command to take a Sabbath. A Sabbath isn't just to rest. A Sabbath is to worship and enjoy God. This is what the Sabbath is all about. It's not just taking a day off. It's about worshiping God rightly with the church. Now, how important is this to understanding the book of Exodus, right? It's interesting to me. If you think about it, It's 40 chapters in the book of Exodus. 10 of them, 10 of them are details on how to worship God rightly. 25% of the book. Now, how many, we've all seen the movies, right? The Prince of Egypt, Charlton Heston, the Ten Commandments. We've seen all these movies and the whole movie is what? The sweeping narrative, the arc of the narrative, the beautiful majestic scenes of God meeting Moses in the burning bush and getting the Ten Commandments and the spirit or in, and God's Shekinah glory coming down in the Red Sea. And we're all about that. But in real life, 25% of the story is an architect's drawing right? 25% of the story is here are the specific ways my people are meant to follow me, obey me, and worship me. That's crazy. See, we, we love the story. We love the narrative, 
We love the story of deliverance and Moses meeting God on the mountain and all of that, but 10 out of the 40 chapters are detail-oriented worship instructions. And that should tell us something. Listen, in this way, God has no chill. <laughs> right worship only happens when we follow God's words. That's my first point. But we also see something else. And this is kind of the main thrust and the main point of my sermon this morning. God isn't kind of like lazy or just kind of lackadaisical about our obedience, but neither is he legalistic. He isn't standing over us saying, obey, 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 or else. Obey or else, obey or hell, fire and brimstone. It's not the way God inspires obedience. No, God Let's just look at the story. Look at where we're at already. God has reached down and redeemed them and rescued them from Egypt. They've had needs and struggles and enemies attacking them on the way to the promised land. And God has stepped in and helped them defeat the enemy. Remember how they defeated the Amalekites that came to crush them? They had to keep Moses' hands up. That's what they had to do. That's all they had to do. Moses kept his hands up, letting everybody know you're not winning this battle on your own strength. Your own military strategy is not conquering the enemy. God is doing it for you. And then what? He fed them in their weakness. He fed them in their hunger. He gave them water to drink and their thirst. He met them. He gave them rules of a just society. This is what it looks like to flourish as human beings. The Ten Commandments. Don't kill one another, right? Don't commit adultery with one another, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. God has been gracious over and over and over to them. And now God is saying, I will be there with you. Make this covenant with me. If you worship me rightly, construct this tabernacle This is amazing. All the stuff I've done in the past for you, that's nothing to what I'm about to do. What I'm about to do is I'm about to step out of uncreatedness. I don't know. I've just made that word up. Okay. What I'm trying to say is God exists outside of creation. Okay. He's in a category all by himself. He existed before anything else was. He's an eternal spirit. And God speaks creation into existence. And what is about to happen is God is going to enter into his own creation. We're going to see it next week. I'm just going to give you a heads up. The tabernacle becomes a portal. Let's just say it like that. I'm going to use that. Why do you need details? Listen, why you, we're not making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches here, okay? We're building a portal from another universe, okay? We're building a portal for the transcendent God to enter into humanity and men and women to get what their heart longs for, and that's an encounter with the real God. You don't just slap that together, Right? You should know this. Like nearly every like Marvel movie is made up by some scientist messing up just a little bit, right? Creating giant ants and stuff, right? You can't mess up the tabernacle. It's too important. It's too big, right? It's too, that's why it's detail-oriented. Now listen, so God is coming down. He's giving them so much grace. He's giving them grace in the present. He's giving them grace in the past. He's giving grace in the future. Now this is what we need to know. Grace is better than anything you've ever heard of before. God isn't chill. You don't want him to be. Ladies, if you buy a new outfit and you step in and you step out to show your husband, you don't want him to be chill, do you? You don't want to be, you want to be passionate. You want to be in love. You look amazing, Right? When somebody hurts our children or somebody wounds us, you don't want the police officer to get there and be all chill. Yeah, that hurt. That stinks. Right? You want him to be just. You want him to get there and put handcuffs on people and, and, and deal out justice. We want a God to be real. We want a God to be passionate. We want a God to be true and loving like he is. And this is gracious. Our God is gracious which is better than chill. So part two, point two from our text this morning is this. God's grace is bigger than you thought. God's grace is bigger than your sin. There is more, this is all just point. I don't know what it is. I'm just keep making it, okay? There is more, if you're taking notes, I apologize. There's more of God's grace than there is of the people's sin, This blows my mind. There is more grace available than they have of sin. 
then sin is possible. There's more grace available than there is sin possible. The people's rebellion here, listen to this, it didn't change God's plans. After they rebelled, remember, here's how you build a tabernacle. What do they do? Worship God wrongly, build an idol, build a big calf, sin horribly, right? Moses comes down, breaks the commandments because they had already broken the covenant. He gives them a hard word, right? Repent of your sin. And he does something crazy, makes them grind up the the false idol and spreads it over the water and they have to drink it. And those that don't repent are destroyed. But those who do repent get the grace in the moment to renew the covenant again. It's more than a second chance. It's more than a second chance. They get grace in the moment to restore the covenant, to be what they were called to be. Even though they've broken, even though they've walked away and they've sinned, God says, no, you can still be my people. You can still be this city shining on a hill. You can still be my special treasured possession. There's grace for you in this moment. That God gives them grace and forgives his people, gives them the grace to repent and return to him when they walk away. It also shows us here, listen, that sin, our sin doesn't change God's plan. You know what God's next word was, right? It wasn't, oh, you screwed it up. Don't worry about that tabernacle thing. Plan B, let's do something different. No, he commanded the tabernacle. They sinned and rebelled and then repented and were restored to right relationship. And the next thing is, remember that thing I told you to build? Let's go. It's time to build my mobile home take the offering and let's go. Now that's fascinating to me. The people had a monumental screw up. They did the exact opposite of what God wanted and God commanded them to do. God said, take the resources that I've given you and build me a house so I can be near you and so that you can know me and worship me the way I want to be worshiped. And the people took the resources that God gave them had their weak leader, Aaron fashion an idol in the image of a cow and they worshiped it the way they wanted to worship. It is the exact opposite of what God commanded. Now, parents, listen, how does it make you feel when your children directly disobey you? Right? When you say, don't go to the neighbor's house without asking permission, and 30 minutes later, they're down the street. Right? Now you're mad, right? Now, why are you mad? You're not mad because you're mean. You're not mad because you're an angry person. You fear for their safety right? And then also you're just upset because you lose trust in them. You said, don't do this. They do the exact opposite. And what happens when someone disobeys, you lose trust. The relationship breaks, begins to break down. See, disobedience always destroys trust. And when trust is gone, a relationship is strained. See, a good parent isn't chill about disobedience because disobedience destroys trust and a relationship cannot live without trust. It is the oxygen of all relationships. Once trust is gone, the relationship begins to suffocate and die. And this goes right to the heart of biblical faith. God speaks And he says, will you trust my word? Will you trust me? When we refuse to obey him, we are refusing to believe his promises and his commands. We're not being faithful. And the Bible has strong words for rebellion. And Samuel, God says this, rebellion, disobedience is as the sin of witchcraft. It's that bad. See, God has no chill when it comes to sin because our sin destroys trust. Our sin is destructive. It ruins our relationships with one another. It ruins our relationships with creation. It ruins our relationship with God. Listen, what happens in a marriage relationship if one spouse keeps breaking the marriage vows? One person is an adulterer who rebels from the covenant they made before God. What happens? That rebellion destroys trust and a relationship cannot survive without trust. The only hope for that relationship to be restored is if the person who keeps on sinning repents, renews their covenant with their spouse 
and then remains faithful to it. It's the only way it works. And so it is with the people of God. Listen, at Mount Sinai. They must obey God. They must worship God rightly. They've been forgiven. Guys, listen. They've been forgiven all their past sins. All the, the, they've broken the covenant over and over and over. It's not about being forgiven. Listen, if you're, if you're a spouse who's, you know, breaking your covenant and you think every time the, 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 somebody says, hey, you know, I ask you how you're living or ask you how you're doing, that they're throwing your past sins up. That's not what they're doing. They're trying to rebuild trust. It's not about being forgiven. You can be forgiven of all those things. But if you can't obey in the moment, you're not trustworthy and you're going to destroy your relationship. That's how it is. Now, listen, it's, that's how it is with God. God's mission has not changed. He wants a house. He's moving into the neighborhood and it's got to be done a very specific way. If they want to be in relationship with him, they must obey his words. It's as simple as that. And folks, I'm going to say it to us this morning. It's as simple as that for us. If we want to know God and to walk with God rightly and to experience the presence of God in, re in real life, we must obey him. We must follow his words. But here's the reality. Many of you go, yeah, but, and there is a big but right here. But how? How do we do that? How do the people obey God? How do they, do they just say, fine, you know what? I'm just sick or tired of it. I'm going to do it. Waking up this morning, I'm a new man. Obedience is my middle name. Let's go. Right? They watched all their, you know, encouraging YouTube videos the night before, and they got themselves pumped up. Tomorrow, I'm going to obey. Or maybe they woke up and they groveled, and they just reminded themselves of how stupid they are and how weak they are and how much failures they are. Is that what they do? It's not what happens. See, these are some of the Things, some ways we try to motivate our own obedience through guilt and shame or through pride. You can do it. You're the man. You're the woman. You're the boss. So much of what's being written right now is written right there. It's written on either shame you into obedience or motivate you by pride. You are a god or a goddess. You can do whatever you put your mind to. That's not... Biblical faith. It's not how God motivates his people. It's not how we, and none of those motivations work eternally. None of them work over the long haul. They all bring all kinds of neurotic behaviors, all kind of fear of failure. This is how God does it. It's interesting. God motivates present obedience through past grace, present grace, and future grace. The reception of past grace. I don't, hardly should have to explain this because if you've been around here, you know how much grace they've received. Rescued out of slavery, all the stuff we've already went into. Now listen, here, here's the reality. Past grace inspires present obedience. I'm, I'm relying on present grace in the moment to help me obey, and it also guarantees grace for the future. What is our part? Our part is, I want to say it's easy, but in the moment it's never easy. It's repentance and faith. Putting, turning from all the ways that we try to make ourselves right with God and putting our faith in the grace of God in the moment. Not just past grace, in the moment, and hoping for the future and knowing our hope is in the future, that that future grace will be, the, be there. Listen, this is what the Bible talks about. If you look in Paul, talks about the obedience of faith. This is the way faith obeys. Faith doesn't motivate by pride or shame or fear or guilt or legalism. Faith motivates by a trust in the grace of God, past, present, and future. Here's how the Apostle Paul says it, okay? But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, what does that mean? 
because the grace of God has given him a new identity. He isn't, he didn't create himself. He's not standing here. I'm a very educated, he was a very educated person, but he wasn't standing and saying, I made myself. My upbringing, my education, my success at work. He's not identifying himself with what he does. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. God's grace made me who I am. This is my identity. Listen, that's what he says. And his grace toward me was not in vain. He didn't waste his grace on me. Listen, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Paul says, the grace of God is more than just washing away my past sins. The grace of God has changed my identity in such a way that it now is a new power in the moment that causes me to outwork everybody else. We look at Paul and we say, how was he such a missionary? How did he go through so much abuse? He knew how to live by grace, not just faith in past grace that your sins have been washed away. Faith in present grace. In the moment, I have all that I need in Christ because my identity is secure in Christ and hope in the future grace. Jesus has started a work in me and he's promised me he'll complete it on the day of my salvation, the day that I die or the day Christ comes back. I have faith in past, present, future grace. Now we know this. Let's first, grace, past grace is both pardon for the sins of the past and listen, and it's also power for o- the obedience of the future. This is, we've seen this in Exodus over and over and over, right? First off, past grace, we've been forgiven. Ephesians 2.8, by grace, you've been saved through faith. This is past grace. It was demonstrated in the death of Christ on the cross, bearing our sins and removing the curse of the law and absorbing the wrath of God. Without this grace, no good thing could come to us as sinners. No promises could be made. No covenants could be kept. But listen, just as important as bygone grace of pardon is the future grace of power. Jesus said to Paul when he wondered how he would be able to endure his thorn in the flesh. Paul cried out to God several times. I have a thorn in my flesh. I have a weakness. I have something bothering me. I have something that I can't conquer, something that I can't defeat. I have this nagging reality in my life that reminds me I'm a sinner and I'm weak and I'm broken. God, I need grace. God, I need your help. And what did God say to him? God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Listen, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That your thorn in the flesh was given to you so you would rely on the present power of grace in your life. Not just bygone grace, not just looking back in the mirror and remembering what Christ did for you on the cross and washing you of your sin, but he's also working in you right now a a grace that's powerful that gives us the the ability to follow him and walk with him and obey him. Grace is power for Christian living. Grace is the power to treasure all that God is for us in Jesus. Grace is the power to love all whom God loves. Grace is the power to pray for all God's purposes to be fulfilled in our life. Grace is the power to mediate and to meditate on all God's word. See, we are utterly dependent upon grace in our lives. And so many of us, we thought that we came to Christ at a church camp or we came to Christ at vacation Bible school or we walked the aisle and we received past grace and we think now I'm on my own. Now I need to try hard. Now I need to work hard. Now I just need discipline and willpower. It's not reality. That's not the Christian faith. That's legalism. That's religion. Christianity is grace in the moment, to live the life God's called us to live. So grace is not only a past experience of pardon, it is a future experience of power to do what God commands us to do. Listen to how John Piper explains this. This is why gratitude for past grace is not the fuel for today's obedience. 
You can't run your car on gratitude for yesterday's gas. You need today's gas for today's trip. You need today's grace for today's obedience. And the pump is not gratitude, but faith and future grace. What is he saying? Do we remind ourselves what Christ has done for us? Absolutely, yes, we do that. But we also wake up dependent on the gasoline we need today to live our life. The grace of God that's coming to us right now. I crack this Bible open every morning expecting new mercies, expecting new grace, new gasoline to get me through this life. We're dependent upon him. This is faith in future grace. And it's interesting. This is what they do here. This is what happens in chapters 34 through 39. They've experienced past grace and they're given the grace in the moment to obey God. They see all that God has done for them, all that God is going to do them. He's going to, after all we've done, to, we deserve wrath, we deserve death, we deserve judgment. And yet he's still going to use us to build his tabernacle. He's still going to move into our neighborhood. Does he realize how jacked up our neighborhood is? Does he realize how much of a ghetto it is? He's moving in. And so it's not just, listen, their obedience is motivated not just by past grace, but present grace and future grace. And look what happens. Verses 35, God says, do it. Well, I'm going to just read verse 5, 35, verse 5. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. It says, take up an offering. Look, look what he says though. Who as, whoever is of a generous heart. Let him bring the Lord's contribution. Hear that. God is not twisting their arm and saying, I'm going to swallow you up in the earth if you don't build me my house. Right? Would he be just in saying that? Absolutely he would. They're wicked sinners. They don't deserve anything. They've already rebelled against him. They deserve his judgment. But what does he say? He says, See, this is what real worship is. He's saying, all I've done for you hasn't melted you. All I'm promising to do for you, leading you into the promised land, being near in the moment for you, meeting your every need, hasn't melted your hard heart yet. Let's, let's see. I want you to build me a house, but here's the deal. I don't want a dollar from anybody whose heart doesn't move them. I don't want one thing from one person who's not inner motivated, who their heart says, oh, now's our chance to worship God. Now's our chance to give to God, to move his mission forward. And look what happens. I'm going to skip a lot. Go down to verse 21. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him. And everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. Let's skip to verse 26. All the women, look, whose hearts stirred them to use their skill, spun the goat's hair. Skip to verse 29. And all the men and women, the people of Israel, look, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it, look, as a free will offering to the Lord. This is gospel obedience. This is obedience that's motivated by the past grace of God, the present grace of God, and the future grace of God. It's a beautiful picture of restoration after rebellion. The people are relying on the grace of God and renewing their covenant and they're restoring the trust that was broken in their relationship between them and God. Now listen, this is God saying, you know what? Yeah. You're You're worse than you thought. Did you think they really thought Moses would be gone for 40 days and within 40 days they would have rebelled from God and they would have forgotten and broken the covenant. Do you really think they thought they were that type of people? Right? No way. 
But here we see they're worse than they thought. But they're also more loved than they thought. They're more forgiven they thought. Their forgiveness is a lot deeper, a lot more thorough, and a lot more life-changing than you thought. God is more kind than they thought. Here, listen, Christianity is not just a change in outward behavior. When you go in a baptismal tank like this, and you get baptized, and you come up, it isn't just saying, oh, good, I'm going to try hard from now on. Christianity is about the seed of the gospel going inside of you and changing you from the inside out. You're a completely new person from the inside out. It's a revolutionary change from the inside out. And what happens? How do you know that happens? How do you know that's happened to you? I'm going to say it like this. Something happens in their heart and they feel forgiven. They feel loved. They feel empowered. Their wealth that they wanted to use for their own worship, they're now taking that wealth and they're using it for the worship of God. And I'm going to say, personally, I know this to be true and I think many of you do as well. These are the moments that we long for. These are the moments that are the sweetest in life. You sin and you forget the kindness and the graciousness of God. And you wonder if you're past the point of being loved, but then the spirit brings a sense of refreshment to your spirit, just brings a refreshing wind to your heart. And you feel the graciousness of God in the moment. You actually know what it feels like to be forgiven. And it feels sweet and special to your heart. And what men and women who were once called stiff necked and rebellious, now their hearts are stirring them to worship God rightly. Reminded of Acts chapter 3, verse 19 and 20 that says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Listen, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance is a gift. It's not a bad thing. Repentance is a gift. It's not a bad thing. This is where the Lord wants us. He wants us to be moved deeply by his steadfast love and his graciousness to us. Four times in chapter 35, Moses tells us the people's hearts are moved or stirred. And that emotion, that soul-stirring affection shows itself in increased generosity and heartfelt obedience to God's commands. That's true worship. That's true love, not making yourself doing it, not pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, not white knuckle and obedience, obedience from the heart, obedience from faith in the grace of God. Now, this is interesting. Let's look at chapter 36, verse three. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from the task that he was doing and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Now, this is probably the first and last time this has ever happened. Okay, the people were so aware of present grace in their life and the promise of future grace. They were so repentant and so moved in their hearts by God's forgiveness of their sins that they gave so much of their resources, Moses had to tell them to stop. (laughs) Moses tells them to stop giving. Here you see two miracles, okay? One, 
Stiff-necked sinners are so melted by the grace of God to them that they open their wallets and take off their jewelry to fund the mission of God, right? Let's build God a house. He's coming to town. God's going to be with us. He's forgiven us all of our sin. He's going to be here helping us in the moment as we move into the promised land, and he's promised to get us there, past, present, future. Let's do it. And they take their rings off, and they take their necklaces off, and they melt them down to build all the furniture that God wants them to do. That's an absolute miracle. Listen, I'm just, for you in this room, it's the same thing. When God melts our heart by grace, he makes us into generous people. And if you're not generous, I'm just saying, if you're not generous, right? And what is generosity? Well, the Old Testament start talking about a tithe, which is about 10% of your income. If you're not somewhere around that 10%, then, then you're not a generous person. And therefore, I would say your heart has not been melted by the grace of God, or it's in the process of being melted. One of the ways you can tell that you've been melted is by your generosity with the, the resources that God has given you. Now, that's point one. That's, that's the first miracle that we see in this text. The second one, This probably has never happened again, okay? A preacher doesn't just build a bigger building because he gets the money to do so. He's like, now we're good. Take it home. Spend it on your wife. A preacher says, stop giving. Go back home. It's enough. Now, why why is that important? The point was to obey God. The point was to build the tabernacle the way he wanted it to be built. It wasn't to do what they thought best right? What would we do? We got extra money. You know, let's put a coffee shop in that thing, (laughs) right? The kids need a water slide to get to their classrooms. Let's do it, right? You get, that's not the point. The point isn't to build the biggest, best thing that we think God wants us to build. The point was to obey God exactly how he said to do it. God said, this is the house that I want. It's okay that the walls are curtain, all right? That's fine with God. And so Moses shows them what right worship looks like. I could take in more money. No, I'm not going to. We're going to build this how God has told us to build it. And then chapter 39, we're skipping around, so we're almost done here. Chapter 39, verses 42 and 43. According, look at this, guys. This is what happens when you rely on present grace. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. Now listen, if you remember from the beginning of Exodus, there was this very important structure in the argument that Moses was making. And he talked about their life in Egypt and how ruthlessly Pharaoh made all the people work, 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 work. That they were slaves to work. They were building somebody else's kingdom, forced from the outside in. And God here is, and Moses is trying to let us see, God is not like Pharaoh. He is a new master, but he's a gracious master. He's not putting pressure on their wills and forcing them to work. He's moving inside their hearts and giving them grace to change them in the moment. And that's why he says over and over and over and over, the peoples whose hearts were stirred. But then it doesn't just said, oh, their hearts were stirred and they sang songs and swung back and forth and lifted up their hands and just had a great day and went home and did whatever they wanted to do with the rest of their lives. No, grace motivated them to worship God rightly, to obey God. And Moses is telling us right here, that's what happened. Everything God told them to do, they did it. Behold, they had done it. And the Lord had command, as the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. I love this. Then Moses blessed them. Now I can, I bet you this is one of the sweetest times in the life of Moses. Moses, I'm tired of grinding up idols and making them drink it. I'm tired of rebuking. I'm tired of angry. I'm tired of, you know, dealing with all this problems that are going on and trying to figure out this, you know, he was the judge over Israel and he's trying to figure out all these arguments. Finally, look what happens. When the people receive the grace of God to live and worship God rightly, Moses gets to do the best job a pastor could ever do, and he gets to bless the people. 
Obedience, gospel-motivated, heart-level obedience brings blessing. The first thing I've ever had my children memorize was Ephesians 6, 1 and 2, paraphrased version. And it says this, children, obey your parents so it will go well for you. I wanted them to know that obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings punishment. Part of that punishment is the loss of trust in relationships. But when we obey, it goes well for us and they are blessed. And part of that blessing is just peace and enjoyment. When the people are rebelling, Moses becomes a bother to them. He's always talking about sin. He's a guy who keeps reminding them and disciplining them to follow God. He's the shepherd with the hook on his staff, and he's always grabbing the sheep and hooking them back in, right? When the sheep are going straight, guess what the shepherd is? He's annoying, maybe even painful sometimes. This strains their relationship, and the people are just not a joy to lead. Moses doesn't get to enjoy them, and they don't get to enjoy him. Their relationship is full of conflict. It's good conflict, but still that is just tumultuous and not peaceful. But listen, when the people put their faith in past, present, and future grace, they can now be at peace with one another, be at peace with their leader, and be at peace with God. This is one of the great gifts of obedience. It makes our relationships enjoyable in themselves. And the same is true with them and God. When they're living by faith in future grace, they can enjoy God. He's not just always rebuking them. He's the one who's present with them, who's helping them, who's motivating their obedience, who's empowering them for future service. The same is true for us. When we're living by faith in future grace, we can enjoy God. Listen, Jesus has secured the forgiveness of all our sins. He has given us the Holy Spirit to be with us in all our weaknesses. And he has promised us to finish the work that he started in us. That's past, present, and future grace. Listen, this is the only proper fuel for faith. This is the only proper fuel for the life of faith. This is what's called, what the Bible calls the obedience of faith. 100% motivated, not by my willpower, but by the grace of God. The past, present, and future. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this text. More than the text, I thank you that you're the God of this text. That you're the God that's not surprised by our blatant sin. You're not surprised by our blatant rebellion. But you're also the God who's not chill in the face of it. You don't ignore it. You're too good to ignore it. You're too loving to ignore our sin. And so, Father, I pray through your spirit, the, the grace in the present moment right now, that you would open up our eyes to our sin. Help us see the ways that we're rebelling from you. Help us see how we're trying to build our life on something other than the identity that you've given us in Christ and how it stinks in your nostrils and how it's destroying the trust that we have in our relationship. It's destroying our relationships. I pray that you'd give us the grace to see that. And then in the, right on the tail of that, you would give us this sense of what happens in this text. You would stir our hearts to worship you rightly. That we would know we're forgiven. We're empowered and we're promised life change. God, we look forward to the day where we see you, and we're finally the people that you've called us to be, the, the people that you've destined us to, to be. When we step into your presence, and we've been glorified through the work of your son. We look forward to that day. We hope in that day. We have hope in this moment that tomorrow we can be better than we are today because the grace of God at work in us put our hope there. And now as we come to this table, I think that this is a means of grace for us. 
This is, there's present grace available. Why do we come to this gathering? One of the reasons we come is because there's grace available here this morning. We're reminded of the work you've done, the work you are doing. We come to this table to receive the grace of God given to us in your body, Jesus, and in your blood that was shed for us. But there's something special that happens here. We're reminded in a tangible way that there's grace for us now, not just in the past right now. And I pray that we would come with open hands. That's the only way we receive you. We bring nothing to you. And we just open our hands and receive the gifts that you've given us. The body of Christ that was broken for us, the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Let us worship you rightly this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.